not available in all states. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Thank you for joining me today. I've been inviting a number of you who have a testimony to simply write that out and send it to me. I'd like to read for you today a letter that when I received it yesterday, I laughed with joy, with holy joy. I could not contain myself. And I want to read this letter to you. First, I want to give you our mailing address I would very much like to hear what God is doing in your heart, how this broadcast is touching your life. So I'd like to give you our address. It's simply National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346. That's National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, Two two one nine five. So simply write to me at National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box two three four six, Woodbridge, Virginia two two one nine five. You also are welcome to go on the web, nationalprayerchapel.com, just nationalprayerchapel.com, and there you can find resources podcasts. Everything is free of charge. We've been given freely. We give freely. So make yourself at home at the webpage. You'll find Pastor Jim Kerwin has placed podcasts, and also his books are available online. So go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. We also invite you to come and worship with the National Prayer Chapel. If you're hungry for Jesus, if you're tired of your sin, and you want victory, you want the bondage of sin broken in your life, then come and fellowship with us and watch what the mighty hand of God will do in your life. We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church. We rent space from them. They've been very kind and very gracious to us. So we're at the All Saints Anglican Church, and the address is 14851 Gideon Drive. Again, that's All Saints Church, 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. Our service is held Every Sunday at 12.30, we begin prayer at 12, praise and worship at 12.30. At the National Prayer Chapel, we always begin our service with corporate prayer. And you're welcome to come and be a part of that. Our Tuesday evening meeting is an old-fashioned John Wesley class meeting. 
And we begin that at 6.30 with prayer, and we pray for one hour. And then praise and worship begins at 7.30. So you're welcome to join us on Tuesday evening or on Sunday afternoon at 12.30, 12 o'clock for prayer. Now let me share this letter with you that I just received. This person writes, Hello, dear Brother Greenlee. I'm writing this with a rejoicing of soul after hearing for the very first time for me your radio broadcast, which was precious, a precious wellspring in my soul. I know exactly what you're saying uh, to very... Let me start that sentence again. It's handwriting, and I have a hard time reading part of it. I know exactly what you're saying about the crucified self and that the soul has to go through this agony, 33 years of walking with Jesus. How wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to hear the precious truths, confirmation of it, though I don't need it. And you meant your mention of Brother Bevington couldn't have brought more excitement of soul, also getting small in his log. And the gracious grace of God that you're walk, uh, walking in him to deliver that poor young woman bound for years because of the events that took place in the ice cream social. I remember the first time I ever heard Romans 6.6 preached. I was smitten by the reality that I wasn't living a victorious life over sin and how he has produced a purity of soul and a freedom from sin. I cannot rejoice over this enough. And isn't it, and isn't that what the gospel and the cross are all about? Yea, it is hard to express it to others who just accept their two natures, but that is a lie. Because we are made dead to sin by faith, and he does manifest in it this life, glory. What a wonderful gift from the vine of Jesus, this freedom from the bondage of sin. How wonderful to hear these precious truths come forth. I know exactly what you're talking about about concerning the agonizing of the soul over sin, the coming face-to-face with one's depravity and utter helplessness to deliver oneself, which is impossible. But by precious grace of a merciful God, we are being transformed forever before our very own eyes, a new creation. It's just amazing to see what he's doing to change us. 
It's into someone we don't or never have known because it's a new creation. And what an amazing person we become through the baptism of fire, through the wine press, thoroughly purged. It is his love that is working into our hearts because that's who he is. And we can be nothing other than the carrier and the duplication of his eternal being. How wonderful to hear these precious truths come forth from your lips. Wonderful truth. I shall listen again as if Jesus himself were calling me to feed from the green pasture. So very happy to hear your sister, Judy. Judy, I want to thank you for that wonderful letter of encouragement. I laughed with joy as I read it. Jesus is faithful, and you know the Lord. You know the truth. The bondages of sin are to be broken from our hearts. We're to be set free. We're to walk in victory. What an awesome truth it is to know Jesus Christ and to have the power of the blood utterly and completely destroy the works of the devil in our heart. Now, if you're one of those that believe that the works of the devil can continue to haunt you and continue to move in your spirit and in your heart, I hope you've heard what this dear sister Judy has said. You can have the victory. If there are others of you who have the victory, write to me, share those victories. What an encouragement to all of us. Now, I want to share with you today a story. It's Friday. And I love this story. It's C.G. Bevington. The book is Remarkable Miracles. He wants to tell us a story about three broken ribs. He was at a mission. And one dear brother came to me with an invitation. He said, I've been going out to the suburbs for several years to hold services. I have a Sunday school out there, and I believe that the Lord would be pleased to have you go out with me. I'll take you with me tomorrow, which is our regular night. So we went, and the brother preached to the people in a home. The meeting went on for several nights. And there were four saved, two sanctified, and three healed. Can I stop there? This is the testimony I want at the National Prayer Chapel. Here are the number of people who were healed. Here are the number of people who were saved. And here are the number of people who were totally and completely sanctified. They prayed through to victory. Now, that's called church. How many years has it been in your church since someone was truly saved and sanctified? If people are not getting saved and sanctified in your church, it's because the gospel message is not being proclaimed. A false gospel is being taught. When the true gospel of Jesus Christ is taught, there will always be people saved. 
and there will always be people sanctified. Is that your experience? Have you been saved and sanctified? Let me continue. Soon, no home in the area could hold all the people who came to the meeting. And three sisters came to us and said, we've rented a storeroom near here and we'll fill it up for you to hold these meetings in. We agreed and we went them with them to help them prepare the room. It was in the fall of the year and it was quite chilly. It was cool. And on the second day of work, I was polishing the stovepipe while standing on a cloth bottom chair. Not wishing to soil the cloth, my feet were on the outer edges of the chair. I was rubbing with all of my might, stretching and reaching as high as I could. When the chair turned over, I fell, heavily striking my side on the chair. The poor chair was completely smashed, and I just lay there among the bits and pieces for some time. I don't know how long it was. When I regained my senses, the building was spinning around at a tremendous rate, and I felt very sick. I tried to get up, but I could not. And so I fell back on the floor, and I tried to pray. I was in such misery, I could hardly even do that. Finally, I did feel a little better, and with the aid of three other chairs, I pulled myself to my feet. The pain in my side had me gasping in agony. I wondered, what in the world was the matter with me? I found that putting my hand on it and pressing down hard helped a little bit, so I kept the pressure there. I even preached that night with my hand holding my side. I didn't tell anyone what had happened or how the chair had gotten smashed. The following morning, I found myself in difficulty. I had rigged a way to keep the weight of the covers off me during the night by propping a machine cover up at my side. I spent the night praying, getting some relief, and even sleeping briefly. But at any move, I would awaken feeling as though a thousand needles were pushing into my side. And then I would pray and get some relief. And then I would doze off again. It was a miserable night. Brother Allen heard of my fall and came to see me that first day. He worked only five blocks away and had meals sent to my room so he could be at my side as much as possible. At night he slept in my bed as I was now down on the floor for firmer support. I was no longer able to abide the bed. He would get up and go to work every morning. Brother Bevington, he finally said, I know that God healed me, but this seems to be a different case. There is surely something terribly wrong with your ribs. You must see a doctor. No. No doctor for me, I replied. But by the fourth day, I seemed to be impressed to see one anyway. Lord, I don't want to see a doctor. Thou art my healer. 
I stuck it out another day. The sixth day since the accident, and finally decided to go to a doctor. I'd not had anything to eat at all during that time, although a woman came daily to bring me food. I couldn't eat a thing or even swallow water without being thrown into spasms of pain. I pulled myself up with the aid of two chairs, holding my side. I packed cotton batting under a belt and and wrapped it around me for some relief. And using a stick for a cane, I ventured out to search for a doctor. After hobbling three blocks, I saw a medical sign and I went in. I stood against the wall near the door and soon the doctor entered to call his next patient and urged me to take a seat. I knew I would have a terrible time getting back up, so I remained standing. But his southern hospitality would not permit him to let me stand, so he kept insisting that I sit down. Finally, to appease him, I did and suffered for doing so. I sat there for 40 minutes, waiting my turn. Finally, he motioned for me to come in. Doctor, I don't think I can get up alone, I responded. Three men came to my aid and assisted me inside. Well, said the doctor jovially, you seem to be somewhat crippled up. He put his hand on my side as I was not prepared for that act. I hollered out loud and almost fainted from the pain. The doctor reconsidered his approach. Perhaps this is something quite serious. I'll give you something for pain so I can examine you. No, doctor, nothing of the kind, please. Just go ahead and make your examination. He poked gently at my side and then looked at my face. You cannot undergo such an examination as I will have to do without some kind of pain medication. I refused the medication again. Well, what happened? Did a, did a mule kick you? No, was all I said. I didn't want to tell him what was wrong. I wanted him to find out. Well, what is your profession? I'm a holiness evangelist. Do you live around here? No, I'm from Kentucky. Oh, you're way from up north then. Were you holding some meetings there? Some, yes, I replied, wishing he'd quit asking questions and start giving me some answers. Well, where are your meetings here, he asked. I started first in the Wilcox Mission. With that, he stopped and looked at me most critically. Are you the man from up north that saved Tom and Liz? No, I never saved anyone, I replied. He eyed me with suspicion. Well, I heard that story pretty straight from a friend of mine. What's your name? I told him, and he repeated it slowly, and then said, That sure sounds like the name to me. You must be the one, he told me. He told me, my friend told me all about you. No, you're mistaken. No, I got it pretty straight, and it was in the newspapers, too. Your name sounds right. Didn't you hold meetings at the Wilcox Mission? 
Yes, I said. But then I explained to him that I had not saved Tom and Liz. It was Jesus who had saved them. Well, well, so you're the party who fasted and prayed and stuck to them until you got them saved and remarried, and I hear they're, they're doing quite well. Yes, I guess they are, I replied. Well, how much money do you have? I'd like to take an x-ray. I knew that they charged $10 for that in Cincinnati, so I quickly said, I'm not able to have an x-ray. Still, I felt that somehow an x-ray was exactly why God had wanted me to come to this doctor. I was unsure what to do except to wait for God to move. Finally, the doctor said, I have to put a silver dollar into this machine each time I use the x-ray because it isn't mine. If you have just one dollar, I'll go ahead and I'll use it on you. Now, I knew I didn't even have a dollar. So I bowed my head and I waited for a moment. And then I said, I have a friend who will give you a dollar. So if you will go ahead and do it, I'll have the x-ray. He positioned me, blindfolded my eyes, and slipped in one of his dollars. Upon one look at the x-ray, the doctor pulled the blindfold from my eyes, exclaiming, My good man, you're all torn to pieces inside. I don't see how you've lived these six days in this condition. Your first rib is separated three-fourths of an inch, the second one half an inch, and the third one a quarter of an inch, and there is a piece of bone about the size of a horseshoe nail torn from your first rib lying right across your other ribs. That's why it's causing you so much pain. He shook his head in amazement. I can't do anything for you. But I have a cousin in Nashville who's in charge of the finest hospital in Tennessee. He and I were talking over the phone the other day about Tom and Liz. He said he really wanted to see that northern fellow. And I'm sure I can get you in there real cheap. Ordinarily, it would cost you $500 and take about seven months. But tomorrow, I will see what I can do for you. I went back to my room saying, $500 and seven months, Lord? Lord, thou canst beat that time. I went into my room and I resumed my position on the floor, every movement causing great suffering. But I believed I would soon get victory. The floor was getting harder and harder. Night came, and so did Brother Allen. I told him what I had done and where I'd been. He said, what doctor did you go to? I told him the name. Oh, he's a dear friend of mine, a saved man. He's the one who, who bought the baby organ for me to play at the jail and on the streets. He does all the doctoring at the foundry where I work. Everyone recognizes him as a Christian. He always gets down on his knees and prays at the foundry before examining patients. 
I see him as I pass by his office. Brother Allen gave the doctor a dollar for me the next morning. The dear doctor worked faithfully all that day for me. That night when Brother Allen came in, he was covered with perspiration after having run three blocks to break the news to me. I just stopped in at the doctor's office to see what he'd been able to do. Everything is all planned out. There will be a stretcher with four men here at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. They'll bear you to the depot where a special train has been chartered to take you to Nashville. You will be cared for at the remarkably low price of just what the material for the artificial ribs will cost. It won't be any more than $80. All the work and care and board will be given. It will be donated. You're going to have nearly $700 worth of medical help donated to you. That doctor is such a good man. Brother Allen, I said, that's, that's a great favor indeed. And I do feel thankful for what the doctor has done. But I just can't go to that hospital. What? You won't go to the hospital? I can't. I felt helpless to explain. Brother Bevington, you must remember that you are not in the north now. You are in the south, where gangrene springs up in cases such as you have and spreads so rapidly it risks infecting the whole city. The Board of Health will have to interfere, and you will be sent to the pest house. I will never endure seeing you sent to that place. Didn't the Lord heal you down here in this very city? I reminded him. Yes, but your condition is altogether different. In the first place, you are older than I am. I know I didn't have any ailments that would cause gangrene. I want to stop a moment. When my wife got sick three years ago this month, on December 3, she finally said to me, Ray, take me to the hospital. The Lord is saying, I'm to go now. Now, she'd been sick for some time before that. But she said to me, Ray, the Lord has said, do not go to the hospital and do not go to the doctor. I said, okay. I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray for your healing. And for some time, I simply fasted and prayed. Some 30 days. Crying out to God for Jan's healing. And finally, she said, Now the Lord is saying, go to the hospital. She even wrote out a letter to whomever it might concern. It is my choice not to go to the hospital, but to wait upon the Lord. 
And if he chooses to heal me, I'll praise his name, I'll glorify his name, and I will continue in the service of the Lord. But if he chooses to take my life, I'll go to be with Jesus. And there I'll rejoice because I'll be in the presence of my Lord. We wept over that letter. And finally the day came when she said, Ray, take me to the hospital. And so I took her to the emergency room. A short time later, they admitted her. Within hours, she was in surgery. And they discovered that she was literally full of cancer. She came home, and I nursed her. And I prayed for her full recovery. And she seemed to get stronger. She went to church every Sunday. But then she said to me, take me back to the hospital. And so I took her back. And again, they did surgery. But the doctor said to me, it's palliative. There's nothing more I can do for her. And so I took her home, and she was in great courage. She was rejoicing in Jesus. Her eyes were on the Lord. People would come to encourage her, and she would encourage them. I dropped off radio so I could spend full time just taking care of Jan. Day and night, I nursed her. I continued to preach. I continued the work of ministry. I finally had to pick her up in my arms and carry her to church and lay her on a pew where with a face bright with joy she waited for the healing of the Lord. The Lord said to her, I will heal you. And he said to me, I will heal Jan. We stood by faith, not wavering one inch, not wavering at all, standing firm in the belief that God would heal Jan. She continued to lose weight. Finally, I was able to use a wheelchair, and I would take her to her doctor's appointments for her checkups, and I would take her to church in the wheelchair. And I would lay her on that pew with pillows and blankets. And she would rejoice as she listened to the sermon, as she would lift her voice in song before the Lord with a beautiful smile upon her countenance. And then one Sunday, she said, Ray, I can't go today. I'm too sick. And that Monday morning, Jan went to be with Jesus. I was up with her all that night. She went in and out of a coma. 
she would come out of it and she would say, I love you. And she would say, I love Jesus. Let's pray. To her last breath, Jan was praying. And as she passed, she was healed. Now, I'm sharing this personal story with you that you might know what Brother Bevington is truly dealing with. If God does not choose to heal him, gangrene will set in, and he within hours will be a dead man. He knows this. Do you understand? When we come to the Lord, we do not always get our first choice. The Lord promised he would heal Jan. Now I can tell you with no reservations that Jan is healed. But she is not with me because Jesus stood between us in our marriage. And Jesus had first call on Jan's life. And the Lord finally said, I want Jan to come home. Her work is finished. Brother Bevington is now in that place. He is saying, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. Whatever God's will is, Let me go back now and read this story for you. He tried to reason with me. Brother, you must exercise judgment here. You are not dealing with northerners now. You are dealing with hot-headed southerners. So according to what you've just said, you believe God's power is limited to place and people. You may believe that, Brother Allen, but you will never make Bevington believe it. I will not, under any conditions or circumstances, go to that hospital for my ribs. I cannot turn back on my heavenly doctor. Never. He has done too much for me to fail me now. Do you see, Bevington was not afraid to die because he was sanctified. He was made holy. There was no sin in his life. He was clean before God. You only need to fear death if there is sin in your heart. My precious wife, Jan, did not fear dying because she was ready to meet Jesus. Now, I hear people say, I don't care if I die because I'm ready to meet Jesus. But one glance at their life tells you their life is full of sin and they have believed a lie. And if they die in that condition, they will go to hell, not to heaven. It's a, 
It's a frightening thing to say, if I die, I know I'm going to heaven, and your life is full of sin. Don't be fooled, my dear brother, my dear sister. Don't be satisfied with the life when you're in the bondage of sin. Those bondages have to be broken by the blood of Jesus. You have to be released. You have to be sanctified entirely. You have to be made new in Jesus Christ. Do you see this? I tremble when people say to me, Oh, I'm saved. I say to them, What are you saved from? Are you saved from sin? And most people say to me, Oh, no, Pastor. When Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see me. He just sees himself. Liar, liar. Your pants are on fire. It's not true. Don't take that Kool-Aid of death. You must be clean before God or you will be lost. Do you understand? Brother Bevington can say, My condition is in the hands of my God because he is clean, he is washed, he is made whole by the blood of Jesus. There are no bondages of sin remaining. He has been sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost. So he can say, I'm going to obey the word of God to me. I'm not going to go to the hospital. Believe me, if you're sick, and you haven't the word of God in you. If you're sick and there's sin in your heart, you better go to the hospital quickly or you're going to die and go to hell. Brother Bevington was not against hospitals. He was not against medicine. He was for obeying the word of God. Now listen. But you might infect the whole city They will not allow that for a million dollars. You will have all the officers in town after you in the pest houses where you'll land. That will be the result of your refusal, and you will not have anyone to blame but yourself. With that, we retired for the night in complete silence, and the next morning he set off for work only to meet the doctor along the way. Well, said the doctor, I suppose Brother Bevington is delighted with what's been done for him. Doctor, that fellow is acting like a crank for sure. Why do you say that? Brother Allen was frustrated to the point of sharpness as he spoke. He doesn't want to go to the hospital. He has set in his head that the Lord is going to heal those broken ribs. Nonsense, replied the doctor. He has said that he absolutely will not go. Are you telling me the doctor said that he's turning down all that I've done for him? Yes, I'm sorry. That's what he's doing. And off stomped the good doctor with his southerner's blood dancing to a dangerous beat. About 10 a.m., three officers showed up and raked me over the coals. They gave me 24 hours to reconsider my decision, leaving me well informed as to the pest house. The time limit was put at 11 a.m. the next day. I went to praying the best I could. The next day they returned right on schedule, ready to take me to the pest house. 
I prevailed upon them to give me until 7 a.m. the following day. They had a doctor with them who said, Gentlemen, there isn't any sign of gangrene yet. A most remarkable exception. Strangely enough, there is no sign of inflammation either. It is really a clean wound. Grant him his wish. The officers left for the time being. Brother Allen came in expressing great desperation over my obstinacy, especially upon seeing I still could not sit up or lie except in one very limited position. I told him to keep quiet as I was trying to compose my own feelings. I was getting somewhat weak and nervous. I'd never been troubled by those feelings to any alarming extent before. Brother Allen, you just stand still and you will see the power of God. I was well nigh convinced God was arranging to give the people there an object lesson they would not soon forget. But my suffering seemed to increase. But somehow I held on. I continued to struggle in prayer. Just before dawn the next day, I saw myself actually shrinking down, getting smaller and smaller. I felt a glimmer of a hallelujah, for I knew I was on the Lord's trimming lathe. I was being trimmed down. So I began to softly praise the Lord. I did not dare to exert myself, nor did I want to for fear of breaking the bond that was being woven round and round and through me. Neither did I want to awaken Brother Allen. I just kept quietly saying, Glory, 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 and at each utterance I would see more shavings fly. I knew I was getting the victory. The glories just kept coming out, whether Brother Allen was sleeping nearby or not. They were getting louder and louder. Once I knew it was time for him to get up, I did not hesitate to open my mouth even more. I was getting excited to realize my efforts were not hurting in the least. I'd not taken a long, deep breath in days, and I'd wanted to so badly. So I tried it and rejoiced that it didn't hurt. Brother Allen now was awakened, and he was staring at me. I raised my right arm in the air, and nothing hurt and I just shouted as loud as I could, Glory, it is done! And as I said those words, I heard my ribs come back together. I jumped to my feet and began pounding on my ribs, frightened by my actions. Mr. Allen jumped out of bed and grabbed my arms. Brother Allen, I'm healed. Brother Bevington, you'll kill yourself if you don't stop. No, I'm healed. In spite of his trying to hold me, I kept pounding those ribs and felt no pain. Brother Allen did not believe me. He actually thought the suffering and possibility of not getting healed and the prospect of the pest house had so worked on my mind that I'd gone crazy. But it was done. It was complete. It was wonderful work of supernatural power. As I relate these words, I can still feel the glory the same power I felt back then. I rejoice in a Christ who heals. Hallelujah to his dear name. May that name always be magnified as we exalt him above all other agencies and powers. 
I felt hungry right away, so I went and had a good early dinner. I'd not eaten anything but one meal during those eight days of struggle. When I came back to the room, how different everything looked. I fell on my face on the very spot where I'd been healed and sent forth the contents of my heart. A great landslide came into my soul, and I laughed and I shouted for about three hours. And finally calming down and becoming somewhat normal as I adjusted to the change and the healing, I thought I should let the doctor know what happened. I went to his office and I took a seat and I waited for him. When he came to the door, I spoke to him, but he just grunted at me. He had been insulted and the old man in him was making a fine display of what he felt on the inside. When it came my turn, he stepped to the door and motioned for the next person, ignoring me. So I jumped up, feeling he could not fail to, fail to see the difference in my movements. It had the desired effect, and he looked at me in amazement. What's happened to you? Doctor, I'm a healed man. It was readily apparent he did not take much stock in that statement, but the facts were staring him in the face. He couldn't reason them away as I stood there pounding on my ribs and, showered, and shouting. That Presbyterian doctor just stood there looking at me with a wild look in his eyes. I didn't care what all of his other patients thought as they stared at me. He finally laid his hand on my side. Go ahead, pound on my rib, doctor. He did, and then he dropped his head down on my shoulder, and he began to weep and tremble until he shook my whole frame. He reminded me of an aspen leaf in the wind. After weeping for several minutes, he said, There must be something in this healing power. I've never seen anything like this. You say Jesus did this without any other kind of remedy. Yes, sir. Now here's another dollar, for I would like you to take that x-ray machine and turn it back on. I'll gladly do it. I'm very interested in that sliver that was lying across your ribs. I informed him that the silver would be in its place, and when he turned the x-ray on, he just stood speechless while I laughed. He laid his head on my shoulder again, and he wept and trembled as he said, There is no splinter to be seen, and no trace of it ever having been there. The glory fell, and I had to walk the floor. I didn't dare be too noisy in that office, so I just paced back and forth. I felt that I was actually flying, for it seemed that my feet were not touching the floor. Brother Bevington, I want you to come to our Presbyterian church on Lookout Mountain and give your testimony tomorrow morning. I will vouch for it. I'll pick you up in my car. We're almost out of time for today. There's several things I want to say about this story. One, Brother Bevington could have died, but the Lord wanted to use that healing as a mighty testimony of his power. Many times in previous years, the Lord had healed Jan miraculously. He'd healed her from asthma, He'd healed her from a number of different life-threatening disease situations. 
But in the case of her cancer, he chose not to heal her, not in my way, not in the physical realm. Instead, he healed her by taking her to heaven. Our God is a mighty God. And when we give our life over to him, it is for life. It is for eternity. And we are simply now humble servants before him, waiting upon him. There have been a number of times in my life where there was no possibility of deliverance. And I simply prayed and prayed and prayed and waited on God. Now, one man said to me yesterday after the broadcast, Pastor, I don't want to be like Brother Bevington. I don't want to have to pray for 40 hours before something happens. I want to be able to speak, and it's done. I laughed at him. That wasn't kind, but I laughed at him. And I said to him, you're too big for God to answer your prayer that way. Did you see what Brother Bevington said? He was put on God's lathe, and the chips began to fly. We're too big for God to heal that way. We would take it for granted, and we would think that it was something about us that caused God to step forward and bring forth a healing. And then we could be somebody. We could go around and give our testimony, and people would think we were important, and we could preen our feathers. No, no. No one shares the glory of God. It is his alone. The reason so few prayers are answered is for one of two reasons. Either there is still sin in your life, and you are caught in the bondages of wickedness, and you are presuming upon the grace of God. Or, number two, you think too highly of yourself for God to answer your prayer. Now, yes, pride is a sin, but it's possible to be unaware of your pride until you're faced with that very trying circumstance and God brings about a situation where you see that there is absolutely no way that you can rescue yourself. It is indeed a humbling thing for a man or woman to have to admit that they are powerless. But God will not answer your prayer until you are powerless. God will not break the bondage of your sin until you hate it and renounce it and recognize that you have no power to deliver yourself from your sin. If we could deliver ourselves through our strong iron will, there would have been no need for Jesus to die. You can no, long, you can no more deliver yourself from your sin, then Brother Bevington could deliver himself from his broken ribs and the gangrene that surely was going to set in 
Are you willing to humble your heart before God today and admit that you are powerless and that only his power can bring that deliverance to your heart? I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. If you know that you are powerless and you need to come to a place where you can be prayed for and where you can hear the gospel, the true gospel taught, then come and fellowship with the National Prayer Chapel this Sunday. Prayer begins at 12 noon, 12.30, praise and worship. We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Let me give you the address. It's 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. That again, 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. I invite you to go to our web our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com. Now, Almighty God, light a fire under my brother and my sister who are in bondage. Almighty God, deliver your people today. Thank you, Mighty King. I pray in your holy name. Amen. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon.